Oh, you're so lucky. You get to work in public spaces. You travel all over the world and you go to every public space. But actually, I usually lose about 20 pounds when I do the research. You talk to the people who run the parks. You talk to the municipal authorities. You talk to the managers of the park. You talk to the people who run the schools nearby. And all of this you do in a couple of weeks. Hello, everyone. Today in the Strzelka Institute podcast, we share a lecture by Seda Lowe, professor of environmental psychology, who explains how public space provides the potential for civic life, why American teenagers avoid parks, and most importantly, how to create an inclusive public space for all. Why does public space matter? Do you go to public space to relax, to recreate? Do you go there to reconnect with friends, to remember memories? Do you go there to revive yourself because you live in a small apartment and getting out into public space really makes you feel refreshed? Do you go because there are religious ceremonies or do you go to reinforce social ties by having large picnics? Um, do you uh, use it to reconstruct community or do you think it's mostly important for improving uh, real estate value? Public space doesn't just matter to us as individuals in terms of religion, but it also matters in terms of a whole definition of the city or of the society. It is often the symbolic center of civic life. I was trying to think, I guess the Kremlin, the public space of the plaza, is that representative of civic life. It's a forum for discussion and democratic practices. It's a recognition place of racial and cultural diversity. Um, it's a place of circulation of information, at least in Latin America, and again, I don't know here. Um, this is a place that people come together, and long before we had newspapers or the internet, people talked. And this is where ideas were fomented and where politics began to develop. So the circulation of information isn't just digital, it's also very important that people talk to one another. It is a place where all publics, um, that's the idea that there isn't just one public, you're not one public, you probably make up many different publics. I don't know, I can't, without interviewing you, find out. But that the, all different publics can be represented as well as counter publics that might be in some cases excluded from some forums, but again in public space, even those uh, contesting uh, the organization that is in control um, are represented in public space. And in that way, public space uh, can allow for the expansion of the public sphere. And in this case, by public sphere, I mean the number of people that actually participate in making up the ideas and the thoughts and the traditions and the everyday life that we are all part of. So public space matters in incredible numbers of ways, um, both societally, globally, as well as at this individual community level. And for me, an ideal public space is something, that, a place where everyone can be. There are people playing, there are people selling things, there are people going into the subway, there are people shopping, there are people resting. It's very idealistic, I accept that. It's very utopian. 
I've begun to write more about the fact that I think that contact and contact theory is very basic to are creating the kinds of societies that we all want to live in and that the way we can move towards greater collectivity. Public space for all is an ideal, but you need, when I talk, to know in the back of my mind, I really want us to have spaces, at least some spaces, not all spaces, but some spaces where you would have the opportunity to meet people that you wouldn't otherwise meet. Based on this ideal that I'm arguing for and the idea of the importance of the symbolic and civic center of the city, public space becomes really basic to civic life. It provides the potential for civic life by offering physical and I think virtual, even if we start thinking about the internet, and I'd love to know what you think about that, that it is also a virtual site for civic life by our offering this places for people to come together safely for discussion, for cooperation, and as I was uh, interviewed about, also for conflict. Because it's through the working out of conflict between groups that in fact we have greater understanding. And civic life in a just city, which is something that I am committed to, as are many planners, um, I think, and many architects and many designers, and certainly social scientists and urban anthropologists, needs to be based on diversity, equity, inclusion, and the recognition of people's rights to the city. But the question is, how do we achieve it? So based on 30 years of public space research, we've really found that there are some things that we can do. Power processes, dynamics, design and planning decisions that can either influence whether you have the kind of public space that performs in this way or whether you have a public space that doesn't work. I wanted to say a word about the kind of research we do. And one of the things that we want to keep in mind is anthropological research traditionally was you went to a place and you lived there for a year. You go to a village usually in the city you go and you live there for a year. Actually, I went to Costa Rica for 20 months. And that's all very fine for our analysis. And I wrote a wonderful book over that and many other visits. But the real reality of our everyday lives is that we need ethnographic methods that are really applicable in our contemporary urban environment. And this is something that your Center for Urban Anthropology has really taken on by finding and developing new methods. Um, the method that I have used for most of the research that I'm gonna talk about in this talk I call it REAP, Rapid Ethnographic Assessment Procedure. It's historically associated with action anthropology. In other words, it was developed in order to intervene, actually usually in health crises, where you had to go in and, avenge, and, and analyze an area very quickly. Um, the method emphasizes collaborating with the local community it's a cooperative method, and the basic methodology is the triangulation of different kinds of techniques. And what a REAP does is it provides really a snapshot of the social dynamics of a place at any one time. It's not easy work. Everyone thinks, oh, you're so lucky. You get to work in public spaces. You travel all over the world and you go to every public space. But actually, I use, usually lose about 20 pounds when I do the research because you do many things and you often do it in a team. You do behavioral mapping, 
of where people are, what they're doing, and at what time of day. You do transect walks where you'll walk with people and ask them to take you across the site and tell you what they do in their everyday, a, a very personal view. You do individual interviews. If you work in a place that has multiple languages, then you have to be doing, I usually interview in English and Spanish and French, but mostly English and Spanish. And if I need Chinese or I need Russian, then I hire a student who knows that. Um, you do expert interviews. You talk to the people who run the parks. You talk to the municipal authorities. You talk to the managers of the park. You talk to the people who run the schools nearby. You do a lot of participant observation that I won't have time to talk about, but that's the hanging around and watching what happens. Because what's so important about participant observation is it's really only through you being there and seeing what's happening and then thinking about what you're being told and what you're seeing, that you can begin to understand a space. It's the contradictions, the inconsistencies between somebody says, oh, this is such a safe place, and then you see that there are no mothers and children there at all, all right? And then you ask yourself, so why are there no mothers and children if they're here if it's such a safe space? And it begins to focus you in on understanding. We use a lot of historical documents um, to really understand any space. And all of this you do in a couple of weeks. So you usually have a team of people. And the magic of it is, is even though it's done in a very short period of time, you have many different kinds of evidence, many, many kinds of data. And by moving back and forth and using those different kinds of data, you can begin to formulate better questions and get insights into what's going on. It's not perfect. It's never perfect. But it's so far the best method we've come up with. I'm going to talk about four kinds of threats to public space. First, I'll start with lack of representation. These are all reasons that a public space might not be used or might not be successful or might have tremendous conflicts. I'm gonna start with our Independence Hall where the Liberty Bell is in Philadelphia. This is a huge park and it was built by our National Park Service. And the National Park Service was really concerned that no one from Philadelphia used this park. There was plenty of tourists, just like going to the Kremlin, you know, with huge tour guides. But no one locally, and it's a very, very large park. It takes up maybe a half of the center of the city. And so they asked us to come in and do a, a REAP. And what we did is we um, interviewed people that they had identified groups that they wanted to use the park. There were African-Americans who lived in a housing project that was not very far from here. We interviewed Vietnamese newcoming immigrants who had moved into a neighborhood very near. We interviewed Puerto Ricans and other Latino groups. We interviewed um, Italian-Americans who traditionally are also in this neighborhood. And we interviewed um, Jewish-Americans who had traditionally lived in this neighborhood but actually no longer live there. What we found is locals said that there's so much for tourists and nothing for us. Everything there was for tourists. And African-Americans said the only thing black at independence is the ink on the Declaration of Independence. And the Vietnamese said, 
Well, you know you have this Liberty Bell, and the Liberty Bell was about colonialization, Americans throwing off the colonialists of England, all right? Why don't you interpret this, this bell as colonialism for us, too? Because we see the uh, Liberty Bell as being important. And I must say, in this case, I was very lucky, because 20 years later, they have, in fact, done all the things that we suggested, and it's now a place that is used by locals. It took a long time, but there is now a museum on slavery. There are tours uh, in Spanish and all kinds of languages. Moving a little more quickly, Pelham Bay Park in the Bronx of New York. This is a place that has become very, very popular with Spanish-speaking populations, particularly Caribbean and Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican. And it's been really fabulous. It's great for a park. It's a really big park and a beach. And so they have summer dances and salsa and music and movies and picnics on Ocean Beach. And it's really been claimed by the Latino population. However, there are still all these original uh, people who lived in the Bronx who were sort of average white working class people who would live there. And they felt marginalized. So representation's complicated, as I guess what I'm saying, that Sometimes we can do very good things with reintroducing new kinds of symbols through dance and music, but yet we need to be thinking about the cultural symbols of all the people that use a park, because otherwise you end up marginalizing. So a loss of cultural symbols can be problematic. But I also want to turn around this discussion. I've told you about the threats, but those very threats can all be translated into opportunities. The threats are based on this 30 years of research, all of these reaps that we've done in all of these places that you're seeing, but we also have, based on our research, found things that we can do to make our public spaces better. So instead of lack of representation, you would have evidence of the local history. You want to retain cultural symbols. You want to restore things with their social functions. You want to have adequate territories for everyone, for all the kinds of activities. Commercialization of public space um, is very controversial in the United States because really most of the people, the gurus of public space in New York, believe that you must have a certain amount of commercial activity to have a, a successful public space. But we have also found you can commercialize something to such an extent that people can't afford to go there, they can't get a cup of coffee, they can't uh, do anything because it's become so highly commercialized that it's not acceptable for you to be there and not spend money, which immediately, again, creates another kind of situation. Do you know Herald Square? Yeah. This is a small park where teenagers used to hang out all night long. They didn't want the teenagers hanging out, so they started a, a bid, a business improvement district. This is where all the businesses are taxed, and then they keep the street clean and make decisions, again, taking it away from the public. And what happens, of course, is now the kids don't have any place to go. And um, this has become a very exclusive space rather than the kind of open social space where teens could go because of the controlled access of gating and also the governance. With privatizations come long lists of rules. Here's one for the Sony Plaza, and it says uh, you can't sleep 
loiter or disorderly contact. You can't smoke or drink. You cannot have shopping carts or unintended packages. You can't gamble. Um, you can't do any kind of gaming, no crowding or blocking of doorways, no playing of loud music, no obscene language, no running, skating, or bicycling, no bringing in pets or animals. This is a public space. But the point is, each of those rules, right, is meant to exclude somebody, either homeless individuals who you don't want sleeping there or kids who might want to have a bicycle. What happens in that kind of world um, and you really do see it in the United States, and you do see it in Latin America, that a new kind of moral geography occurs that is based on how much money you are worth, or how much money you have, or even how much debt you can take on. I hope I'm being clear. And on and on and on. And we call this the financialization of everyday life. Um, and this is a kind of consequence of extreme privatization and that suddenly it isn't just that you don't have money or you do have money, but it becomes a moral issue. In terms of privatization, public spaces should have open access. It's incredibly important. Free events and activities, limited regulation. We need to keep our rules down to those that we really need. Um, another one, more cooperation and collaboration. Instead of privatization, right, commercialization, have collaborative spaces. Come up with residential and business ideas and opportunities. Think about your public space as being a space for collaborative meaning. After 9-11, um, they had zero tolerance policing. This kind of extreme securitization keeps all kinds of people out of public space, not just homeless individuals or criminals or whatever who you might somehow feel shouldn't be there, but anyone, anyone who is afraid or concerned about the police, and which includes youth of color, includes all immigrants, includes some elderly, includes vast, anyone who looks like they are a Muslim or Islamic, Huge numbers of people are excluded by really extreme policing. In the United States, uh, the move to community policing has really been much better, has really moved away in which the police get to know the communities and they work together to try to solve the problems in the community. Extreme surveillance does, again, do the same thing. There are lots of people in the world, at least in the United States and in Latin America, who do not want to be captured on camera, and they don't go to public spaces. Most Latinos, immigrants in the United States right now, don't go to public spaces. Why? Because they could be seen and recorded and be asked about their legality or their documentation. Barriers as well as uh, bollards. You don't need both, this sense of a fortress public space. And racial and cultural profiling. Now we have face recognition technology and all other kinds of surveillance. And, and you may say, well, we need surveillance. We need all of this to be safe. But in fact, as I've demonstrated in another book, Behind the Gates on Gated Communities, that more surveillance, more policing, more gates, more bollards, more, 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 only makes people more uncomfortable because it reminds them somehow that they're insecure. And the only answer for securitization is for people to come into contact and to know one another. Have people watching instead of cameras. 
We know that people watching all the way back to Jane Jacobs, it's what Jane Jacobs and Holly White and Jan Gell who came here, all, we all will tell you that people watching makes a place safe and knowing the people. So you don't need those security cameras. We don't even know what they're gonna do with the data. The surveillance and the face recognition is getting us, I think, into a very bad place and not gonna be productive in the long run. And finally, social injustice. Unfair distribution of space. Spaces are not treated the same. If we want a just city and just public space, there needs to be a fair distribution of public space and of the quality of public space and of the maintenance of public space. Lack of procedural justice. This takes a little more explanation. Procedural justice is, is the kind of justice you get through the court in which they could decide against your case that you, know, you may not win, but at least you felt that the procedure was fair so that people tend to feel better about decisions that are made in a fair way. Some neighborhood kids who had been on, had a soccer field, they happened to be uh, Spanish-speaking Latinos, had used this soccer field for their whole lives and their fathers their whole lives. And one day a guy shows up and he said, you can't play here, I paid $27 and I reserved this soccer field. And it was essentially the privatization of the soccer field. Well, the kids thought that they had a right to this public space, but what in fact had happened is there had been no procedural justice. The city had on its own talked to these companies who had come in, in this case, this is Google and the tech companies that are taking over in San Francisco, and made a decision that some people could, that they were gonna charge money, which would totally change, again, the character of this soccer field. It's really important in public space, both representation that I've talked about, but also the recognition that we use public space in different ways. We don't all use public space in the different ways. If we want to have public spaces where we can meet people that we would not otherwise know and where new kinds of ideas and new kinds of relationships and new senses of who we are as a people really, if we want that to happen, then we need to begin to recognize difference. People have different cultural meanings of those spaces and they need to be respected. This is a good thing to not recognize that youth maybe use that space in a different way than maybe the neighbors really might use it is important that we tolerate very different ways of using space and finally, this is a lack of interactional justice by authorities, another thing that can destroy public space. I mean, we talk a lot about justice and the just city, but usually we just think about distribution, but it's really not enough. The procedure by how it's allocated, the recognition of difference, Something I don't even mention here is whether we can care for the public space and care for one another, but also the lack of interactional justice by the authorities. These are just some of the examples of the ways in which public space can deteriorate and can break down. I am very pleased to say that in New York City, we have a new um, program and it's called Parks Without Borders in which we've been taking down fences because traditionally New York City parks all had big 
fences, you know, 19th to 20th century. Um, and they've been taking some of them down or lowering them. They've been making bigger entrances and trying to have a flow between the inside of the park and the community. They've done things like take uh, school playgrounds and take down the fences so communities can use school playgrounds on the weekend, especially in neighborhoods where there isn't adequate amount of public space. So. Flexible and porous boundaries are really, really work very, very well in public space and respect and understanding instead of racial profiling, which of course you would all agree with, but to really create a kind of culture of respect and understanding of those who are different or other. People should have a voice and be able to participate in the decisions about how public spaces are going to be used. People deserve, whoever they are, to be treated with respect and understanding and care in any public space, by any authority, by any manager, and by each other, and that this is a norm that we need to establish. This lecture took place at Strzelka in 2019 as part of the International Conference Urban Inequalities versus Urban Inclusion. Every week here in the Strzelka Institute podcast, we share some of the best lectures which took place here in Moscow over the years. For lectures in Russian, check out our other show called Surprisingly Also Strzelka Podcast. Subscribe to stay tuned and don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. See you soon.